Oh, I, I know the little uh, TARDIS cupboard there. Oh, yeah. A friend of mine actually made that. She made it like from scratch, essentially. It was for my wedding. It was a wedding present. And I keep all my paints and, and inks in it. Oh, boy. So now, cool. Yeah. And it was friends from way back in uh, high school and stuff. And so. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Super talented. Kate Marshall. Married to Dave Marshall at their course. So. Oh, all right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for being here. I think we're going to be starting. Uh, Jeremy is. Yeah, I'm just filling in some blanks here. Yes. Real quick. Okay. It's... Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified. The show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about an extremely 70s classic horror suspense film. It's so 70s that it, there's a 10-minute sex scene between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie almost right at the beginning. We're talking about Don't Look Now. I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cenobites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary. My co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Oh, man. This this was a... I kind of want to visit Italy, but also really don't. I mean, if you want to visit Venice, there's only a few more hours. I've been, to, I've been to Venice, and I got extremely lost. I spent about four hours wandering Venice trying to find my hotel. Most of the time, being able to see my hotel but being powerless to find my way to it. Because as it turns out, Google Maps is extremely not helpful for finding where you can cross canals. How many times did you get mugs? Every time I ate at a restaurant or bought any souvenir. <laughs> nice. Yeah, they do an incredible job of running around Venice in the middle of the night and not getting mugged in this movie. Um <laughs> And uh, next up, the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, our co-host, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? You know, I've seen a lot of, I've watched a lot of Hannibal. I've watched a lot of Dan Cronenberg movies. Um, we all know this audience. However, I have never seen a sex scene so non-Euclidean. <laughs> I don't know what was the point of some of those moves, but I was that, intrigued. That sex scene was non-Newtonian. Yeah, it was the closest I've ever seen a sex scene come to a Klein bottle. Like, it was so, like, M.C. Escher would be, like, why didn't he do porn? Maybe he did, I just don't know. Great question of our age. Why didn't M.C. <laughs> Escher do porn? And to answer that, we have our guest, writer of On and On from Ahoy Comics and so many other things, the inimitable Paul Cornell. Paul, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. Eddie is the category things you don't want to say near an AI art machine because <laughs> MC Escher poured. I really don't want to put that into a generator and see the, it would be, it would be very, very bad to be mugged in the middle of a horror movie. It's kind of like, could you not? I'm experiencing existential dread here. Do not do anything as mundane to me. Thank you. So brain is good already life. mugging me. Yes. It's already like it would be a relief almost. It's like, yes. oh, this is a problem I'm familiar with. Other than like, am I being the haunted? Am I going crazy? Well, am it's either interested? it usually I feel like it's either, oh, this is now somebody that the monster that's chasing me will tear through and will get some additional gore into the movie. Yeah. Or or it's like, 
God damn, just when my night was getting any worse. It's like in Gremlins when the Gremlin gets a gun and it's like, Jesus, of everything I had to deal with, like, great. Now if I survive, I have to go to the DMV. Fuck. It's funny <laughs> you say that now because just yesterday, it's part of my scary movie month stuff. I watched for the first time Jason Takes Manhattan, a movie in which... They fight Jason for an hour and a half on a cruise ship just to end up in New York and get mugged by, like, ethnic street toughs five minutes after arriving in New York. It's like, oh, this. It was everything so, else, and now it's weirdly racist. Cool. Jason. So it's Jason takes Fox News as Manhattan. I guess. Yeah. Well, again, I so I live in Manhattan. They take Berlin. And I work in a suburb in Connecticut. So I am constantly talking with people who get whose entire conception of New York is what they get from the news and so they ask me about things that they see going on in the city and about how dangerous and scary it must be and I constantly have to look at them and go what the fuck are you talking about? New York is fun. New York is cute. I mean yeah there's a lot of like rats and stuff but like some of them talk apparently like I don't know and some of them pilot you and you can make great pizza yeah like compared to like I mean San Francisco is like there's a lot of awful on the street in San Francisco and you know I don't know how much that is balanced by the guys I will say like San Francisco is the only city I've ever seen where I saw two homeless men sitting on the sidewalk playing a full game of Magic the Gathering that makes it seem less daunting. I don't know. Like, I think, I think New York is like cute. In I don't know what to do with that fact, but I've had to live with it now. We've seen was, it for a decade now. Yeah, I mean, apparently that's where wizards, like, wizards are city people now. Like, every city has wizards now. And you know, let's let's talk about this movie. Yeah. So this is directed by Nicholas Rogue, who uh, also directed. Two things we've talked about on here before, I don't think either of which we've actually covered, but we talked about the original The Witches from 1990, which is a, a weird fact that he directed both of those movies, but also The Man Who Fell to Earth, a perennial Emily favorite. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is a movie. Another movie with the, you know, the sex scene in that movie was also very non-Euclidean, but it did include David Bowie naked, which is like, I'm making a, a motion with my hand where there's like, my hand is here and then it goes up there. Uh, well, I, I I think that description probably doesn't exactly define, but but anyway. Well, yeah, yes. I mean it's yeah. hard. This is this is there's a lot of geometry to be added to you know levels of height and standard and stuff like that. But something uh, I mean, in terms of grower and shower, we know Bowie was nothing if not a shower. Listen, I the first time I saw that movie, I'm sorry, I had, I'm doing a tangent. I had to make a dick joke work somewhere. Oh yeah, no, we're I'm sure oh, there will be plenty of time for that um, in this film. Yeah, the first time I ever watched The Man Who Fell to Earth, it was on a television that was muted in a Japanese golf bar, and every time I looked at that screen, different shit was happening that had nothing. To, like there was the cheese train that came up and then they were taking David Bowie's eyes out. And then suddenly it was the sex scene with all the guns shooting and stuff. And all I knew was that I just needed to see it all the way through because I needed context. Turns out you don't need context, but so anyway, context just makes it more confusing. You know, like sometimes that's the way to do it. Like I once saw the 2003 daredevil movie while hung over in a chicken wing restaurant while top 40 music was playing and was on mute. And I've never enjoyed that movie more. 
Yeah. I had yeah. an amazing time. So, Paul, what what inspires you to bring Don't Look Now to us? Well, I think this is a staggering masterpiece. I think this is amazing. And uh, I think since I we had my son, I appreciate it hugely more. It's so it's so much about grief, and that's actually the horror at the center of it. It's the way those two who we're utterly on side with, you know, in many horror movies, the people kind of deserve what happens to them. These two, we really like, and we really want them to feel better. And the the way that she's finding ways to start to process it, and I think he's just fighting it off. He's just fending. And it kind of comes and gets him. And I think that's sort of the the killer, that he's chasing something, maybe his own grief, and it does him in. And yeah, yeah. he's come to Venice to work because he can't stay at home. And when he, where, where he's come from, it's a place full of water. Yeah. And she drowned. His little girl drowned. And this is a, a, a change. The Daphne, Daphne du Maurier original short story, the little girl died of, uh, of illness. And these genius writers, Alan Scott and Chris Bryant, um, because the screenplay here is really detailed. You know, Nicholas Rogue is just basically filming this thing. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how much we buy into auteur theory, but this is a great screenplay. And they have it that she, she drowned and he comes to Venice to work. I just find it tremendously moving and sad. And I've got to say, that sex scene, I, I think it's really great and really important. Um, when, when Julie Christie first reaches over and touches him and sort of indicates, I'd like to get it on now, please, the look on his face, it's sort of, oh boy, this is a big deal. This is kind of painful even. And this is the first time since she died. It's got to be. <laughs> and the way it intercuts between them having sex and them tidying up and putting clothes on afterwards and get, getting ready to go out. It's so intimate between this couple and the audience. I, I don't even think this scene is particularly erotic. I, I, it's not there. It's not there to turn us on. It is. It's, it's there to really get us into the heads of these two and, and to make us relate to them hugely. Because honestly, without going into personal detail, I think We've all kind of been there. And it's it's not a feeling one gets from any other love scene in any other movie. And, you know, it just drags us in. And the fact is, maybe it's all true about the psychics. Maybe it isn't. Um, that's left as a completely open question. But at least Julie Christie is starting to process her grief. Donald Sutherland instead is literally racing after it can't be his daughter for real. Yeah. He yeah. knows that, and yet he's still running after her. And what's so key is that, like, I feel like in so many of these horror movies that you be like, oh, Joy Christie, she's the one that's, like, having an irrational response and holding on and thinking that the ghost is in spirits is real. But she says to her, it's like, I know... She's dead. Yeah. I yeah. Know, like it's like yeah. she kind of does that keep a 
fairly healthy psychological perspective. And I think you're so right. I think that's ultimately where the characters' fates differ is that Julie Christie is attempting to process and her story is processing while Donald Sutherland is just throwing himself deeper into denial. Yeah. And yeah. he's the one who gets the kind of premonition. Yeah. He looks up, for, up from his work when she dies. Yeah. And it's the water on the on the slide and everything is omen type thing. Yeah. I was I did spend a while trying to figure out how much of the movie he had spent as a time traveling ghost. I think it's all pretty literal, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I mean, Mark, I think we, we do see that like the blind old lady who, who can see some things and is a little bit spotty as to what exactly does say that she she thinks that Donald Sutherland's character has some sort of second sight that he's able to to see some of these things that she can see, but he's is deeply in denial of the whole thing. And I think it's really fascinating to me as somebody who's seen a lot of horror movies, and I wonder if like this is because it is based on a story that is is written by a woman. In this, the the female character who does pursue this thing that is is somewhat based in supernatural and you know things like psychic things like that is is in this case not projected as the one who is like trying to run away from things or is not processing is having some sort of stuff thrown on her that in a lot of movies like in a lot of horror movies especially that character would be the one that the the movie doesn't have as much sympathy for or that the movie thinks is is wrong in in some way whereas like the Donald Sutherland character in this is like hard set against entertaining any possibility of the supernatural, except for that for some reason he can see his daughter running around town. And that's that's strange. I mean, because like but it's also he doesn't tell anyone. He yeah. doesn't share yeah. that with his yeah. wife, like He's hiding it. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, he keep this... that shit bottled up. Yeah. The fact reads... that like if he could if he could embrace this idea that he is seeing things that have not happened yet, then like all of the thing, all of the clues that can keep him from dying are right in front of him. Yeah. That like he sees what is clearly a funeral boat going down the, going through the canal with his wife and these, these two English women clearly dressed as if they're going to a funeral. And he doesn't think funeral once. <laughs> he, he's just like, What's my wife doing on that book? This and movie, like, in a sentence, is men would rather ignore psychic visions and get <laughs> stabbed in the neck than go to therapy. Yep. It's true. Yep. It's and true. There's a, there's a wonderful British uh, radio show called Screenshot, which involves the um, critic Mark Camogue. And they did an episode this week about Don't Look Now. Oh, wow. Oh. And Camogue said something, and it's available globally for free on the um, BBC radio player. And Camogue said something really, press, really, I think, intelligent about this, that grief is kind of like time getting messed up. You keep getting drawn back to before the awful thing happened. You keep living in the past. Yeah. And I, I think if any movie benefits from Nick Rogue's technique of mixing up past and present and future, it, it's this one. And yeah, I, th I think that the way that the killer right at the end just shakes her head at, at, at yeah. Donald Sutherland, it's like, no, now all your, all your hopes and dreams are over. 
uh, that little shake of her head is a truly, truly horrifying thing. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's so weird that it's almost supernatural in and of itself. Like it's it's this weird kind of prone figure, you Pretty know. David Lynch moment. There's kind of yeah. a final destination element about it, where it's like, oh, he was supposed to die from falling off of this, but he survived oh. that, so now he has to die a different way. Well, the one of the things that I thought interesting about this movie and helped me kind of contextualize everything is the the fact that it shares a lot of DNA with Hereditary, but it actually has a little bit more to saying about grief in a more subtler way. But I could definitely see the influence of this movie on Hereditary in that we have these characters that are involved with grief and involved with each other, where, you know, Hereditary goes completely off the rails into, like, crazy nonsense which land which is fine for for, for, I for like what her. it is yeah for crazy nonsense which land i'm I've, i'll vacation there but the the fact that donald sutherland is the one who has like i guess quote unquote the powers i find is really interesting in terms of like how grief can affect denial and cause denial and how denial and the bargaining involved there like he seems to be the one who is the like person being gaslit by the grief for gaslight by the pro- like by he, he some has processing. The, he has the shining and his denial is remaking the shot his own shining fuck with him. Yeah, yeah. And that's not something that I usually see the the husband in a relationship in a movie about grief. That's not usually what he's going through. Either he goes like is, a total it, psychotic break. I think he's or, storing his psychic powers in his epic 1970s mustache. I mean, there's a lot of epic 1970s everything about Donald Sutherland. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, Julie too. Christie when she gets back from it, like when she gets back from England and she's back in Italy, her outfit is stunning, impeccable, and so so 70s. I was the amount of running on cobblestones and. and- Heeled boots she does is, is incredible in and of itself. Oscar, fuck she's it not that's constantly what, wiping out. And that's that why she got the amazing. That's why she gets the fucking BAFTA. Yeah, like I, I hope the BAFTAs are for that. The 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 way that those two are, have such an incredibly naturalistic relationship on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, one of the things that Rurig did was that he'd keep the camera rolling just be and start just before they were about to go on and so that he's got little bits of actually julie christie talking to donald sutherland in here mm-hmm. um, because we're not in character but it's just it's such a masterclass in the, the way that in the middle of one emotion he'll give her a little loving grin and 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 do the other uh, and, and it feels like a husband and wife yeah and, and, yeah and I, I, I did want to go back. You were talking about the the sex scene, which like I I will I will in some ways make fun of, of stuff about that sex scene. Like the the fact that I've never I feel like I've never seen a movie pre-1980 that Donald Sutherland was in that he wasn't completely stark naked at some point, um, <laughs> which is, is amusing to me. But like, I think that sex scene does so much to to disprove a lot of this like online vitriol that's been going on about sex scenes and how they're not necessary and how they don't do anything for films. I think this disagree. This, this, this movie falls shows apart you so without... much about their 
their relationship and who they are and how they relate to each other and like a a way that i don't think you would get without that being there and and also i think it's profoundly non-exploitative i you know we're not shown julie christie you know we're if anything shown both of them a bit but it the camera doesn't think that's the point really yeah there's a lot more butt in this movie than there are like there's a there's a lot movie, of yeah. American yeah. you get some like, boob, exploitative but it's a stuff movie. that's like yeah that's it's like breast focused. This movie can really it seems like care less about breasts. It's just everybody's everybody's butt is on screen all the time, and more Donald Sutherland butt than Julie Christie butt. Like mm. I I was also impressed with the fact that he was naked for far more of this movie than she was. Even the sex scene, you know, she starts clothed and he's naked. But we did talk about that sexy and I just talked about it being non-Euclidean and weird. And, you know, it was very like serpentine, how like they were yeah. the the camera work and how they're moving and everything. But I also felt like this was I did feel the realness of the relationship, you know, yeah. and I felt that that context of them getting ready and like Donald Sutherland sitting in his at his drawing desk naked, you know, just after the shower, like that's all. And it's not erotic. It's just, it's so normal. Um, yeah. Which helped the the sex scene feel important because of, of how kind of over the top it was. But it wasn't the kind of, again, it wasn't like a porn sex scene, you know? Yeah. It was like, it was already, it's like an erotic painting, you know? It's like a Matisse. And not in like the erotica, you know, like porn but like it's it's like a, a painting of of human limbs together and sort of these two people are not joy. fucking they are making love yeah and like if she wants to like eat out his armpit you know good for her like that was i mean it's, it did, this is gonna sound weird in, in the the way i'm saying it but it's a very un-american sex scene like it's not filmed okay, like yeah. sex is in any american in, film um, in that the well, women's do, 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 pleasure is actually focused on that is definitely not American. well and that it's very like experiential it's you know that they're not like let's get this shot let's get that shot it's like yeah. they're all sort of wrapped up in each other they're rolling around it's, it's sort of hard to get you don't get the lay of the land of the room very much it's just like uh, the moment there, I, I thought you were saying that Americans do sex differently I thought I've always suspected I mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm sure some do. I, I know from, you know, from uh, complaints from friends that not all people do sex the way Donald Sutherland does in this. Not all men do sex the way Donald Sutherland does here. Um, you mean going down like a champ? <laughs> yes. Going down uh, like a champ. Going out to eat downtown? Well, I was I was I was going to say that the the media at the time kind of made that the focus this the focus of the entire critique of the movie but we're doing it as well, so yeah. Is, uh, um, I I think that's just the sort of human reaction to sex, isn't it? That it becomes the important thing. But it it it, it really brought a strange focus to that movie at the time from reading the um the the press reviews and stuff like that. And even the band um, Big Audio Dynamite in their um song about Nicholas Roeg, E equals M C squared. Uh, their reference to this movie is about the sex. It's extraordinary. It's, you know, the, the killer 
it is this is her only role in movies. I think maybe she does one more, but she's an opera singer. I didn't know that. And wow. um, yeah, and I I've got to say I'm I'd. I'd actually sort of quite like to see her being interviewed or something like that, because can you imagine the casting? We're, we're looking for somebody who can turn around and make us feel utter horror in a second with just your appearance. So who have we got today? To, whoa, what is, hello, yes, you've got the part. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is like ultimately my my big critique of this film is that there is a a strong undercurrent of like ableism in this Mm. both Mm. in the sort of like we do have the mystical blind woman which is sort of its own ancient greek thing but you can buy an etsy you can buy an action figure of her on etsy of the blind woman no of the killer yeah but but also the ultimately like the climax the twist of this movie is that he's been following around this person in a little red coat that he thinks is his daughter because it's an identical coat to the coat that his daughter was wearing when she drowned and that like it turns out that no this is not just the the person who has been mass murdering people throughout or multiple murders throughout the movie they are only sort of a background to the rest of things going on but they are a murderous small person that is is wearing an English children's coat. I, I don't know how she managed to get an identical coat to his daughter's. It seems like a weird coincidence, just th- that works for the twist. But that you know, that's I had a coat like that, that like, in the eighties. So, the horror like... of it is actually it's a small person with a knife. It's very like it. It, it must be said though. It's kind of got to be it's not going to be a murderous child it's got to be somebody that size yeah and, and i mean if that is the the story we're telling like, yeah, yeah 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 it's it's a strange decision to me just from like a you know a, a storytelling from a writing perspective of just like murderous small person especially since they are they're only listed in the cast as dwarf, which is a little. I know. Yeah, yeah. Know. There is a there is that certain sense of like, it needs to be something shocking, yet grounded. Yet the ableism is kind of a little unavoidable. Yeah. I think. Well, I think it, was... Oh, I was to say that I never like when I watched it, I didn't clock her as a small person. I just clocked her as a Nona, like because Italian Nonas are that big. <laughs> And I just thought that she was a little Nona that it, you know, I was I like, oh, the love Italian Nona. Of this course it is. Story of this, like, tiny shriveled Italian grandma who just goes on a killing spree. I mean, I can't imagine it doesn't happen all the time. Like, it's gotta happen, but it mostly, like, you know, b- bump us getting bumped off. Like, it's not, it's not always known as going after young ladies unless it's killing them slowly. I think that, I think there's two things that are going on here in tandem. One is that, you know, he's been fending off death for so long that it's kind of jumped out at him from left from left field. <laughs> or that he's got to process his grief to get on with living because something like this 
could happen because, you know, just sheer accident is waiting for him. And he's already missed one sheer accident in terms of the um, scaffolding collapse. And, you know, when are you going to start living again, Donald Sutherland? I think the movie really underscores that, too, because I feel like there are a lot of, like, ideas and plots going around in this movie, as, you know, with, the, I think it's a, a bishop that he's going to visit and them working on the church and all these other things that are going on, none of which get resolved, none of which get finished. They all get cut short by him being, you know, murdered because he can't, he can't stop obsessing over this. And it may, must be said, if any of them had paid attention to the Venice procedural going on all around them yeah that, that at one point it looks like they're going to be falsely accused of and it looks like oh is it good, that going to be the movie no it's a bit more primal than that yeah i, um, I do i do love when he's talking to the italian detective and describing the story and everything he's seen and the detective response is like damn bro that's wild how about yeah, you like- investigate it <laughs> Yeah, oh, I, I tell you the the Italian detective's response, which I think is sort of like, I'm just going to get this guy out of our out of our, <laughs> our police station. It reminded me so much of the ending of Eyes Wide Shut, where where that guy just explains to Tom Cruise that you know he's put two and two together and made five, and you know. None of this is is true. None of this is real. I think you should just go home now. And it's kind of like he's outside the movie, that detective. He's in a different movie. He's in a much more, much more uh, linear movie. And he'd like Donald Sutherland to know that this is, it's almost like he's concrete reality. And that's not where Donald Sutherland is. And he kind of should be. It's a bit of a slap around the face, really. It's sort of... What? Why are you over there? This I'm not making any sense now, am I? Another thing I love about this detective is him just kind of casually shitting on his own police sketch artists. People look at the <laughs> sketch, it's like, it's not very close. It doesn't matter. <laughs> old ladies look the same. Oh, oh, yeah. All old ladies look the same and <laughs> old men, like, decay into distinctiveness. Like... <laughs> Old this men dude, get weirder as they get on. Yeah. This dude, like, we got some, like, truly wonderfully, like, what the fuck Italian, like, men in this movie. Like, the really <laughs> horny bishop. Yeah, well, what? I mean, this movie's very Italian, and I think that it's, I mean, a lot of movies, you have uh, movies that are very Italian because they're, like, directed by Italians, and then there are movies that are very Italian that is, like, no, this is this is like distinctly Italian. Like these, Ita- like th- and that's what I kind of like is that there was it, I did see that it was a joint production. Where wherever this movie is filming, it commits so hard. Yeah, when we are in the most countryside that ever countrysided. This movie is so British. I was worried it was going to invade the Falklands. <laughs> and when we get to Venice, like oh man, is it just like. There's something I do love just its use of Venice, the cinematography, just this like incredibly beautiful yet haunting city. Yeah, but it's well, also this is very really close. fucking confusing city. But it's just yeah. like, yeah, this is a, another stretch of, of like buildings over water. Like it, it looks like everything else. Like 
Yeah. You know, he's he's trying to follow and whenever anybody's trying to follow anybody in this movie, it's like, where are we again? Don't know. And yeah, long, long stretches of the movie in Italian. Yes. Uh, without yeah. any yeah. translation, without any subtitles. I, I, I appreciate that like I think the impetus there is is just to keep you as on edge and confused and not knowing what's going on as everybody else is feeling in the movie. But also I, I think it's it's amusing to me because I think so many like so many movies that are like that, they're bilingual, will like they'll translate or, or subtitle some of the, you know, Italian. And, you know, even like if you're watching a movie in Italian, you'll get the subtitles. But this movie's like, fuck it, learn Italian. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Well, I, I do appreciate that this movie does a literal smash cut from Donald Sutherland holding like the drowned body of his child. Sm- no transition, nothing in between. Smash cut, subtitle, all caps, speaking Italian. Yeah. Drilling well, it to the church. The, Which works for this called, very... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I was able to catch some of the Italian, and it was mostly very Italian things that they were saying. Like, oh, this guy, oh, this guy, you know, <laughs> these these British people, you know, follow this guy. He's He's weird. Stuff like that. Yeah, I joke about the smash cut, but I, I do think this movie is very interesting in the way it you in like this dreamlike way of how it uses liminal spaces, where it's like sometimes we are just moving from like place to place with and moment and time with no transitions, and sometimes it feels like we're moving through liminal spaces, and I'm not sure where we began or where we're even going in this liminal space, and. Mm-hmm. It, and but and it works uses both of those very effectively to just constantly keep you kind of off balance in this dreamlike state. It really my, my, captures my... the the feeling of being drunk and lost in a foreign country. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I which, which I have been, and it is something. Yeah, when he's when he's drunk and lost, it's like, oh no, I remember, I remember this feeling in my stomach. Oh no, my 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 feeling about that smash cut, which is genius, is oh, and now he's he's quite happy why are you quite happy and and like the movie makes it clear that he kind of shouldn't be yeah and uh it's just that that incredible hot forward in time to a, I, to a point oh, yeah. to a point where he's capable of of having happy conversation with the people around him and i well, think it's so, speaks so, to his denial yeah. yeah like paul you were talking about the the uh, commentary about grief and time and also with trauma, I mean, grief is part of trauma, certainly, but how trauma, like really, really complex traumas are dealt with, it really captures that sense of like, okay, now I have to put on this face, you know, mm. but it feels like it was a second ago, yeah. you know, you're still feeling like this happened a second ago, but then now you have to get back to work, you know, and I think that that is where the movie's editing really makes this like this makes it ingenious like you said and and i can see this movie's influence on so many other things that are uh that talk about that particular kind of horror or grief or you know and i have a lot of stuff written it wasn't just hereditary that i was reminded of but the i had a lot of other stuff that i thought about in terms of like wow so i see kind of a distillation of this this method of of depicting this thing is so relatable and yeah it's it's really effective and it's really cool to see 
here in this movie. And with the Ben, you're talking about the liminal spaces. Um, everything in this in, in Venice in this movie is very close. Oh, in a lot of movies where there's a, especially movies that are marketed in America that feature exotic locations of various places around Europe, you get all these really big wide shots of like, look at the beautiful facade of this historic building that's like 2000 years old or whatever. And you have this grandiose music. And here we have the very close, like, here's the, here's the water. Here's the, you know hairpin sidewalk here's the church doesn't even have that big of a courtyard like i didn't see saint mark's square really anywhere here and it was it did really help feel like really feel like you were there as opposed to you know that this was a a tourist attraction they really resist the long crane shots or overhead shots of venice it's really like on the ground you know when when you're in the church, you're in the church. When you're you know in the streets, it's it's very much like a lot of following them sort of over the shoulder or just behind, and in, in some of these shots, which really I think leads it, it really helps with the the feeling of of being there, the the realness of of some of this stuff, and I think also really helps when something creepy does happen. You're so grounded that you're like, oh yeah, that, that definitely happened, right? Yeah. Like that was yeah. I, I mean so- yeah. I mean, the closest we get to an action sequence is like a beam of wood kind of falling on Donald Sutherland. Low motion Not wood falling. Him off yeah. But I got to say, I'm like, I was at the edge of my seat. I'm like, fuck this wood. Yeah. Hell yeah. Same. Damn, wood smash and he's falling like, oh, fuck, what's going down? Like, it was exciting. And it's, it's a weird movie to say, but it's a very realistic movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think in two senses, not only is it, as you say, very grounded, that the, the depictions of just about everything are right there in a very recognizable physical reality. And also there's an emotional reality to it. But that way of time breaking up, you know, like uh, it, 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 one's day in one's head is very much like, um, you know, a modernist novel. You, you don't okay. You don't spend it in a line. You spend it. In other times, you spend it thinking back and imagining forward. And mm-hmm. I think that is real, too. I wonder what he was thinking about immediately before he was having that happy conversation. And was it that? Was it? He was he, oh, God, I'm still holding my dead daughter. Okay, guys, here's what we got to do. Yeah. Because that seems very real to me. Yeah. Yeah. And as, you know, as each of us processes... And and especially those of us who are working at home or things like that, we spend a lot of time in our heads and and have to really evoke, like in storytelling and in, in writing and stuff, having to evoke something, our, our experience, you're very much outside of time. And, you know, I know that his job is practical, but it is also very, like, aesthetic, too. And there's a lot of meaning there. I mean, the, the fact that he's he's repairing a church and he dies in that church. And he's like all obsessed. He goes up on that scaffolding to replace one piece of the mosaic and, you know, risking his life for this one tiny, just to make sure that this one piece fits. I mean, it's, it's a lot of cool. I mean, again, it's like layers of symbols. And what he's doing at that point, like at that point, his wife is warning, like, I think you're in danger. Please leave. Our son has gotten hurt. Please come see your son. 
please leave your job restoring this church for a bishop that we've already discussed doesn't really give a fuck about this church very much. Yeah. yeah. Like, and he's just being like, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe. And very much in the tone of like, yeah, I'm not going home. Like, I'm staying right here. Like, I love- it is just this denial. Like, he is in, and again, I think it is, again, that smash cut, like, what we skip there is processing, is grief, is funerals, is conversations, mm-hmm. and in his mind, he's, like, it's probably an experience that in his mind where he has just gone from, like, this moment to when he's just able to bury himself in a thing he feels yeah. he can control and understand again. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I think... I, okay. I, I just... Something heartbreaking just occurred to me. At the, at the start, Julie Christie is has, is saying to Donald Sutherland, our daughter just asked, why are our pond... Why is the... If the world is round, why is the ice on a pond flat? And so I looked it up, and I've, just, I've been looking into the answer, and isn't this interesting? And I bet she thinks, just an hour after, did I get her interested in ponds? Yeah. yeah. Oof. Bloody yeah. hell. Oof. Well, the fact that they go, they they leave their remaining child to go to a place full of children and water. Yeah. Like, you guys, I don't know if this is like you trying to forge yourself in the fire, like, exposure therapy or something it's, it's I mean, accidental isn't it it's yeah yeah that, that in that moment where they're like oh shit we're surrounded by children in fire like when she was wakes up in the hospital and, she, and there's like all these kids there and he's like that fire water the uh, the yeah. opposite fire yeah. it's like wait a minute you have children everywhere fire oh no i'm gonna have to deal with this and him being so intent on not dealing with it that he becomes so boring to an Italian priest. An Italian priest tells him to shut up, essentially. He's like, <laughs> it's like, blah, 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 this church, blah, blah, blah. And then the priest says, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Like, Italian. Anyway, this is the idea well, of be, having a religious figure tell you that they've got other plans and need to leave. To me, it's hilarious. Right. Well, it's right. also that Donald Sutherland is an hour and a half late to this meeting. <laughs> I didn't let's even not, catch let's that. Let's not forget that. They have kept this bishop waiting for 90 minutes. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And it was also interesting that Julie Christie's character was, was very much she, like when the priest asked her if she, was, if she was Christian or Catholic, she said she didn't know. Mm. And that is like the realist answer that anybody could have given. And this is the year 1973. It's fascinating to me as well that well, like Donald Sutherland is is doing a job that is restoring a church. But like the moment that the bishop starts talking to his wife about spirituality and Christianity and stuff in general, he's just like, oh, no, that's like. That's not real. That he's just trying to get you into his little cult. Like, you know, why would he ask you that? What's he talking about? This is, I, I hate it. Which is like his reaction to so much spiritual and supernatural stuff throughout this movie. He's just sort of like sticking it into this "don't deal with it" pile. You know, this is all BS, and it's There's... very much the same reaction he has to his wife later. Like, being like, "You should come see this psychic with me." He's like, "Listen." you are not dealing with the fact that our daughter is dead. Like, that she is dead. She's not coming back. She's dead. That psychic didn't see shit. She's working you. She's trying to steal money or something from you. 
And the fact that like you've, you've been into this is just like, it's, it's too much for him. Yeah. When it's him, it can't, who's not dealing with it. You know? Yeah. I think there's a lot to read into that working with the church while not being spiritual. I think it reads into the denial at the heart of the character. Then there's also part of me that's just like, man, I get it. Like I'm real Jewish, but Hey, cathedrals are pretty cool buildings. Ain't yeah. not really any other buildings like them. I get it. If you're an architect, if you really love architecture, I get it. They're pretty dope. Yeah. And- I think, go ahead. I, I think you can re- you could read the bishop's reaction to him in the way we've been reading it. Absolutely. That, that's a bored bishop and this guy's too into it and late. And in the, again, it's that police chief thing. It's like, sorry, babe, we've got another movie going on here. It's a much more realistic one. Or I sometimes think, is he feeling or seeing supernatural evil about Donald Sutherland? I, I, often, I often equate inner turmoil, big, awful feelings that haunt people with supernatural evil. And I think, is it that this guy looks and feels like he's on his way to that ending? I don't know. It's the movie is really vague on that point because I know that like Donald Sutherland is a lot more easy to profile as a big tall white dude, also a big tall white foreigner here in, in Venice. And the fact that in all cases the the closest and possibly correct assumptions are that the killers are old women. And that is like just kind of an afterthought of the movie. But I was like, you know, this is there's so much in film that doesn't like that doesn't show old women killers, especially like these two old women who are there's definitely something up with them because there's that weird cutaway where they're like looking at pictures and they're laughing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's almost like Donald Sutherland. We're seeing Donald Sutherland's uh, it, how he imagines them right now. Like, are they, is this a literal cut to them laughing or is this him imagining like them laughing at his expense because his wife is like so bought into their weird masturbatory seance? I need to, we need to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) They also, he also hears, or I guess at least we hear them laughing as he's climbing up onto the scaffolding in that, you know, section as he's about to almost die. You know, they, they put her laughing underneath it. Which is, is fascinating to me. Ray took the two writers to a seance in Venice before they started filming. Well, that's dope. That's and, awesome. And, and, the, and the writers thought it was bollocks. They they they, they, they yeah. came out like, you know, I saw straight through that, you know. I mean, um, the kind of seance we have here is just this blind woman feeling herself up. <laughs> yeah. Like, if I'm Donald Sutherland and I walk in on this, I kind of get why I'm like very concerned about who my grieving wife is spending all of her time with. I mean, mm. I've seen the wife's. I point would of be view. completely wrong, but I do understand. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's completely wrong. Like, there's something's going on there. It's not it's, the situation is not correct with this weird, like, I mean, rapture seance. Because, like, take yourself out of this movie, like. You are the sequel of this movie. You are now the son. Your sister has drowned. Your dad got stabbed in Venice. And now you are being raised by your mom. 
and her two older psychic friends who she met. You know, the the hardest, That's a setup all on its own. Yeah, it's the hardest part of this movie that I have trouble buying into is that the their son is in a different country at a like at a, a, a school where he you know he lives. Because I was like, if it were me, I have two children. If something happened to one of my children, that other one would not be leaving my sight. Like I, I yeah. think that's telling. I think that's really deliberate. I mean, yeah. they are they are British, mind you. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. Like, <laughs> this is still England in the 1970s. Let's not forget. Yeah. Well, they are. I mean, they are having PTSD flashbacks. I'm glad you. Like, they I'm glad you said it really first. Paul, terminology thank you. here, but like yeah. he is, he is, he is suffering from PTSD in this movie. He is seeing his daughter everywhere. Every time he looks in the water, he's seeing her dead body, mm-hmm. and like you know the. We didn't really talk about PTSD in those terms at this point, but like he is it's very much what's happening yeah. to him. Yeah, they percent. They've 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 pushed the sun away. They really have. Yeah. Because it's part of their denial. I wonder, yeah, and also just part of like, you know, possible you know, you said that awfulness, you know, the awfulness of Julie Christie wondering if she gave her daughter the interest in pawns, this sense of well if if I'm responsible for the death of my child, then the safest thing I can do to my child is to not be around my child. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the defense yeah. mechanism that, is, and, you know, just the the endless chain of grief and defense mechanisms and the damage of defense mechanisms. Yeah. One of, and... Again, I'm, I'm quoting this uh, radio show a lot. But, uh, Alan Scott, one of the writers who's interviewed on the show, said he didn't realize until he was asked about it decades later by an academic, that his own biography is that when he was very young, his father died, and he was immediately sent away to boarding school. Mm-hmm. And he didn't realize that that's in this movie. <laughs> that, uh, I mean, I, that, that's a I, big unconscious sounding there, Alan Scott. You've yeah. Yeah. something, yeah. I yeah. will say part of me when... That happened when they announced in the movie. It's like, yep, and we sent him. We left him in England at the boarding school. But I thought it was like, yes, all of the thematic and character elements that I can read into that. But also, I imagine part of what motivated that was just like, hey, so we're all cool with not dealing with a child actor for the rest of this production <laughs> in Venice, <laughs> right? Like, we're not, we're not going to bring a nine-year-old to Venice, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Glad we're all on the same page with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But also, I mean, I think if it was about them trying to, you know, it's about them. It's not about them dealing with their son, because I think that that would deserve more of the film if it was if it was about them dealing with him or about him, them Hmm. coping with him and them getting through that together with him. You know, I don't see how that narrative would work the same way as the narrative would work with just them with each other and the kind of doubt and like hyper focus on these like either perceived or like misinterpreted things because like the whole thing with the psychic women and the seance and everything kind of brings up for me this this very delicate line of where spirituality is really helpful for people to sort of contextualize things that they can't control or understand and it's a lot of like atheists and, you know, and I, I, I don't consider myself an atheist so much as like agnostic, but it also, I find that 
certain things, like certain people are always looking for a reason to do the right thing if they are interpreting it the proper way. And especially when they're feeling out of control, you know, sometimes they need something like, oh, I got a sign from your daughter that you need to go back and deal with your trauma that with your son. That's the boarding school. Like, maybe you shouldn't be here. Maybe you should be dealing with your trauma more. And if that comes in the in the form of psychic visions, not very impactful, not something, you know, definitely go to therapy with the with the psychologist or, you know, some like don't rely on the metaphysical. But sometimes something like that can be just the way that you listen to yourself. And I feel like that's what was going on with Julie Christie and like how her the way that Donald Sutherland depicted it to the to the police officer like not that these women are obviously grifting my wife he didn't say that he said my wife encountered these women and he and she changed and she and and it was almost like they he was saying that he was that they cast a spell on her or something and then in part of that conversation he realizes that he sounds like a crazy person and so he's like and then there are murders and maybe there are murders because of these women because they seem bad and i also kind of interpreted like the the murder in the end to be the one that they're chasing but because this guy can't determine which old women from each other he's just gonna arrest any old woman that seems suspicious. <laughs> i do appreciate the scenes of uh dog sutherland helping this blind woman back to her hotel just feeling like a huge asshole the whole time oh yes yeah, yeah, I love his reaction to almost dying, like falling falling in the church and just barely surviving. He's like, you know, this old woman told my wife that I was probably going to die. And uh, it's weird that I almost just died, right? Because, like, that's weird. I mean, coincidence, obviously. But, like, yeah, you know, he's, yeah. so, he's so determined of, of his own objective reality that, like, something happens that, like, almost... That threatens to disprove all of that and he's like isn't it weird isn't it yeah. so strange that i almost died after that woman said i was gonna die it's yeah. kind of it, i was just thinking you heard I, i'm a i'm a practicer right i'm anglican and i was thinking has has rogue or the script has put any sense of god anywhere in this movie i don't i was thinking well no this is kind of a godless universe we're looking at here but then there's that scaffolding. There's that, um, you know, escape, absolutely unscathed escape from death. That might make somebody think twice. Yeah, in a and church. Especially I... re- reaching up like you're on the Sistine Chapel with your finger pointing upwards to try and fit that piece in. And I don't anyway, that's a silly thought. That's uh, I'm, I'm sure that's not wasn't in Rogue's thoughts. Well, I was definitely, the, the part of that scene that I... I'm not sure what to interpret or how to make sense of it beyond that final destination interpretation that I mentioned earlier is Donald Sutherland seeing either a fantasy or a vision of him uh, not being saved and holding on where he does fall and die in the church. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm really not sure exactly what to make of that vision. It's a quantum thing almost, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he's seeing the other possibility. It's a real, yeah. sli- real sliding doors type situation, <laughs> but uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, the 
a lot of it has to do, I feel like a lot of it comes with his, like his thought process is so couched in denial that he will get these like very, almost seeming very clear messages. And I'm going to go out a limb here and say like having dealt with a lot of like white dudes in the 90s who have to have things told to them in a particular way to get it in terms of how to take care of themselves. There's something very relatable about him being like, well, it can't be God because I've never seen God. And also this, all this bad shit happened to me. So obviously like it can't be God. I am in a church and I care a lot and I hang out with priests and I do all these things that have to do with God, but it can't be God. And then, so, and then even when he's talking to the police officer, he's like, I'm describing something that this can't be. And now I don't know what I'm doing because I've gotten all of these messages. And, you know, whether they are like the main message is the one that if someone told it to him straight, he would be like, how dare you? Which is get over it or (laughs) so much get over it. But like, you need to look at this thing in the eye. And He uh, he might be right about the psychics. but yeah. But still, they're not doing any harm. They're actually doing a lot of good. Yeah, they are. They are forces of emotional healing in this movie. Mm. Yeah, and like that, and and even though they are, it's kind of weird. Like I don't think it's supposed to look like completely innocent. Like they're not these. You know, it's not like some practical magic. Like, oh, just accept your spiritual side, and you'll be a much healthier. And you have the Trabani yogurt, and everything will be great. But the the fact is that. She got distracted enough that she kind of suddenly saw her priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the psychic does say right at the end, "Go after him. Go after him now." Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that was pretty, pretty positive. You know, uh, yeah, pretty, yeah. I mean, she's like going into a seizure or something when she says that, but like, which I assume because it's just the two of them, that's not performative. Hmm. Um, but you know, they, it's not like they're. They're completely heartless people. They're just probably wrapped up in their own weird paradigm. Usually psychics, quote unquote psychics, people who are trying to grift people, they don't come at you that straight and be like, oh, yeah, I saw your dead daughter. Thank you for showing me the bathroom. Your dead daughter loves you. (laughs) Like, okay, you're either nuts um, or you just have no tact. And like, you're just trying to make me feel better. And if someone was like, I don't know, it's it's. Looking at it now, it looked like just really like horrifying. I mean, if somebody was like, "Hey, sorry about all that shit that happened to you to me," like after I've like helped him cross the street, I'd be like, "You didn't have to bring that up, but <laughs> you're welcome." I, I guess it, it it does occur to me that we've we've seen a slice out of time where he seems quite happy. Yeah, and we get a slice out of time later where we see the psychics laughing. Why shouldn't they have a laugh when they're on their own? yeah yeah well i think that i mean i think ultimately that's what it is i think it's just them because they they reveal that all their photos have nothing to do with anything but them you Mm. know and it's probably just them like you know having whiskey and and reminiscing about these poor kids which are no longer with them or whatever yeah it occurs to me we never did a a, a real recap um I feel like we've covered everything that happens in the we, movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. These things happen. Yeah. Yeah, because there's, a, I mean, mostly it's a lot of like, we get the death scene, we get the opening and the, uh, you know, the sex scene. And then there's a lot of like, 
them going through the streets of Venice talking about whether or not any of this psychic stuff is real. And, you know, as us really seeing sort of. Yeah, the, we got the Julie Christie. We got Julie Christie looking goth as fuck and being amazing. Like we, we hit all the important parts. And then can I mention the title? Which, I was about to ask. Yeah. Isn't, it, isn't that yes. an odd title? What does that mean? Yeah, I kept looking for the like some sort of reference to it in a dialogue or like now, which I truly have no idea. I mean, there's now there, which it's sort of for a movie that splits up time to lead on. Don't look at now. Yeah. Um, You know. It's not even a standard phrase, really, is it? It's just... I mean, it's its a phrase that usually comes with a, a punchline. I yeah. would say in, in its Italian name translates to In Venice, A Shocking Red December. Now, that's a real... That's a real title, like, right there. That's pretty intense. That's like a giallo name, isn't it? That's yeah. A, yeah. yeah. The yeah. bird with the crystal plumage. Yes. Right. But, you know, there's something hidden in those words, don't look now. And you're right about the punchline bit. The next word is usually but. Yeah. Like, don't look now, but a knife in the neck. (laughs) (laughs) But it's usually something harmless after the but. Yeah. Mm, Don't look now, but I think our table is ready. Yeah. It's it's such a, it's a title that sort of asks a lot of questions. It was also not a title that stuck in the memory very well, because watching the movie, I kept wanting to go back to the Wikipedia page, and I kept having to be like, wait, what's this movie called again? <laughs> well, the Italian for Don't Look Now is Non Guadare Adesso, which I don't right. remember any of that being prominent in the Italian dialogue, but I also couldn't hear the Italian dialogue right. super well. I, I will attempt now to pronounce the Italian for, I guess it's Italian name, a Venezia, un diciembre rosso, shocking. Because I guess okay. shocking, shocking is apparently a loan word. Well, they probably would like have it on this the poster. We learn have we have learned all sorts of like what are loan words, like English language. Shocking in Italian. We've learned that YOLO in Spanish means YOLO. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, the Japanese word for time machine is time machine. When did we learn that? We learned that from Hausu, I think. Oh, time. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of Japanese words that are like which makes sense because why would why would like how many cultures would need to go out of their way to create their own word for time machine? The one that always got me with Japanese is that in in Akira, they kept saying the word control, kontrolu, and I'm like, that's a thing that every human talks about. In Earth, like I was just a real big fan, and of I think it was Piggy where they had YOLO. Yeah, apparently Donald Sutherland needed thirty takes to adequately just toss away the phrase. Well, nothing is what it seems because Nick Nick Rowe kept saying, "No, you're making it sound important, and I want you to make it sound really unimportant." He just said to. I'm just imagining you, like a director going to an actor, be like, "No, less gravitas." Yes, right. Too much screen presence. Stop I mean, it. Where, where did he start with? Nothing is what it seems. I think it's just yeah. Donald Sutherland being able to say something, just like 
he just says things and it's hard for it not to sound important. The, the first take, he's just like pointed to the camera and screamed like invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> I think that came out later, but it did. It did. It did. Yeah. <laughs> but he can't say pretty much nothing with extreme graphics stuff. <laughs> yes. God, would, did, had he done, had MASH the film come out yet? Yes. Okay. The film had come out a few years earlier. He had done MASH by now. Oh yeah, he. These are both stars at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I for the life of me, can't figure out why it's, it's called "Don't Look Now." I think it's. It, I, I mean, there is so much about like second sight and things like that that perhaps you know that that is something I'm, that's being referenced there. But yeah, it, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Um, I would have titled it "Cathedral Surprise." That that that's the last course that's on the, the menu. Porn that's the version. <laughs> it's and a much shorter why, version of this movie that's why they don't let me title movies i would i would like the cathedral surprise please <laughs> yeah and my wife will have the tiramisu Ooh. i know you ordered the cathedral surprise but don't look now it's uh it's fish and wine also is this december what's uh, december well, got to do with anything he yeah, does complain about the cold so oh. And the, the hotel does close for the winter. Oh, right. And that's where he, he comes yeah. back and and they said that they're closed for the winter. So, and I think it's one of those long, like extended stay places. It might be more of a, there's several or... characters in this movie who don't feel like actors, but feel like just random shopkeepers and people they pulled off the streets of oh, Venice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's, I mean, that's like, there's a very authentic feel so authentic. Yeah. That yeah. like feels. Like it's really like the everything about street level, all these people that are very normal and acting very like not it's like actors. Got, They're acting it, just like fed up Italian denizens of It's got edit. that vibe you really only find in seventies cinema where it feels like kind of dirty and real, but also prestige. Like when you're just getting like soft golden glows off the off the what the Venice water. Yeah. Yeah. The like we we're talking about when we were talking about Black Christmas, the texture, everything feels like it has texture, um, and a lot of that is because of all the cigarette smoke that has gotten all over everything, <laughs> and created texture, or the yeah. you know the boat smoke or whatever, the boat exhaust. Well, I think we can jump a little bit to our our questions here about the politics in this movie. I think the one that we've talked about a bit already about and is. Uh, pretty pretty fascinating is is it was this movie feminist i think so in the way in a very like oblique way you know i don't think it's 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 the not only... here to talk about feminism but it is here to talk about people without a lot of sexism involved i think the the most uncomfortably like non-feminist moment for me i mean other than the italian co- detective man Italian detective man, which felt like, I mean, for My an Italian detective, superhero. yeah, uh, for an Italian detective well, man, felt pretty. I, uh, I am authentic. wondering when we're going to get the two hundred million dollar reboot of Action Man Patrol. That would be good. The Murder Squad. At least it's not the, the Hot Dog Squad. Great introduction. I, I mean, I do think. Uh, I mean, we talked a lot about how this. I think you know the sex scene is an interesting place to take it from. Is that it's it's not exploitative especially towards julie christie in particular it is you know her both her 
her body and her pleasure are given the same amount of interest as the male characters that she's and i think more interesting even really to me is sort of thematically that it doesn't treat the female character being interested in this sort of supernatural element of the world and her daughter and everything as being silly or flighty or as it often is in in movies like oh well you know she she is the one that's not dealing with it because she is is interested in hearing about this she's like oh no she's amazing and she's just thinking like it would be it would be cool to go ahead and you know have have this moment where we could say goodbye to her but the fact that you know i i know she's there and she's happy is much better and that it, it takes her i think seriously and takes his obstinance toward all of this as a a bad thing in this part mm-hmm. the, the the movie seems to remain obstinately neutral about that it basically just puts us in the room with these people mm-hmm. without really taking a side on the reality of all that which is quite liberating because you don't get forced into the gaze of the movie telling you anything about julie christie's opinions Mm -hmm. i think that's as far as that sentence was going i thought maybe it could keep going (laughs) a bit longer but no no yeah i'm just thinking like the the character who is the most like unrealistic about subjective things and this is donald sutherland and that like he thinks he sees his wife on this boat and like goes down a rabbit hole of like going to the police and trying to figure out what's going on with absolutely zero evidence that she didn't get on that plane um yeah he doesn't he doesn't wait to hear like if she's arrived in england he is startled to find out that she is at her at his son's school so like he is so convinced of his own objective reality and the fact that he saw her on that boat and nothing else could possibly be true that he he turns this into his own paranoid thriller and eventually inadvertently that that is what leads to his death because he he wouldn't be out wandering around looking for this girl if he hadn't had to go to the police station to retrieve the old woman he had had wrongly locked up for murdering people the old blind, blind woman has woman. just been has been left <laughs> yeah. in this Italian prison for oh, presumably no. hours while his they, while her sister thought, went to the the console. You know, all the detectives are going. You know, this is a long shot. This one. <laughs> so, I feel like there was some kind of weird game going on with the detectives. They were trying to like they were they had arrested the the blind woman, so her friend or sister or whatever or lover or whatever they are would leave the console and come get her you know like this is a whole different like this was hannibal happening but hannibal was two old ladies well actually hannibal was the lady well grandma's the the blind lady and hannibal's the lady in the console i i just i just want to hear a pitch for hannibal but it's two old ladies i like the idea of two british old ladies hannibal it's like two fat ladies but they're very friendly and also cannibals and then there's they a, there's a up. Doctor Who episode that just about meets your requirements. Is there? That. Oh, Paradise Towers. Two old lady cannibals. English old lady cannibals. Yep. Okay. Well, it's good. a Doctor I'm Who episode I'm... for everything. I yeah. know. I know. That's why. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's what I say. Luring people in with crochet and trapping them with crumpet forks. That's the dream. <laughs> 
Yeah. Except I don't want to go through eating people, like butchering, you know, I'll just go to the store. So I, I do think maybe the uh, the place where this movie lacks in progressive politics is probably the question of the way it represents physical disability. Yeah. Um, it uses and, it for shock value. Yeah. And then, I, I mean, I think the projection of sort of this short person as a maniacal evil dwarf in this we've seen much more egregious doing this podcast it's not something the movie revels in or spends a lot of time in or really beats you over the head in but you know it is there there's a little bit to be said about age and ageism like there's certainly the fetishization of the blind prophet going on Although there is some interesting commentary about how like normal people really don't understand how someone who has had a disability as long as this woman has can really take care of themselves just okay, which is all kind of in the background, but it's not enough to be like progressive or whatever. But the the fact this the, the killer is an old woman and it's sort of like whether or not she's supposed to be a small person, she is still scary because she's old and she has crazy face and that's not you know in in terms of ableism and ageism that's definitely that definitely counts so yeah so the that is honestly i i don't think i don't know if anybody else has anything to add but i, I don't know that there's much to say in the way of the movie handling race there's very little racial diversity in the cast of this this film yeah I think the, the am I, same. Am I right in saying none? Probably none, unless I mean I think it's all very like a Caucasian Italian, you know, white Italian, and then white British. I don't think I see one person with any more melanin than that. Yeah, certainly not that I can think of. The white people and the whiter people. Yeah, I, I want to say also uh, there's not much in the way of any sort of LGBTQIA plus themes or, or diversity in this you know i, no, I know for uh, the time I, that's not a huge thing but yeah we no, just no, talked no, about nothing. black christmas earlier this week that's even less than that somehow uh the only i think you can do is if you'd say that maybe they're not sisters the the older women but i i think that's just some classic progressively horrified grasping at straws for yeah representation yeah well the the initial shot the very like important shot of them holding hands and i was like oh and then you know it's because she needed to be led to the bathroom because she was blind and then i was like oh okay this isn't this isn't what that's about which yeah there's there's nothing anti in here yeah but also nothing particularly queer going on here other than the other meaning of queer and paul did you have anything any thoughts on that well alan scott's other achievements in life, including creating the um, musical version of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh. oh. Always needs a second to, real, to remember that you're not talking about the Golden Age Green Lantern. <laughs> well, his other achievements. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and actually, the Golden Age Green Lantern is, is of course, now canonically queer. But yes. Um, yes, the, um, just bringing in some comics <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, that's about the second or third remove. I think away from the movie itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, again, I don't think there's anything anti in there, but at least it's you know that's 
that is that oh yeah um, no there's nothing in i don't think there's anything that could be construed as homophobic or anything like oh that. yeah there just isn't lgbt content yeah yeah and i guess the other question is is class which i i don't i don't know too much i think venice oh. is remarkably empty at night which is an interesting well uh, i uh, okay i would say that the italian police seem remarkably willing to entertain every little thought of, of this america he, Don, Don Sutherland is Canadian. He's being Canadian. He's not trying to be British here. And, and, and but the Italian police are willing to entertain every little thought of, of, of this tourist mm-hmm. in, in, in a way which I think, while they're entertaining, might mean that they actually think he might be doing it. Mm-hmm. But, well, that's. But, that makes it crazier that they're like, we're pretty sure this guy's insane and maybe killing people. But then they they do hey, decide you, against. Let's <laughs> just ar- let's just arrest this bl- old blind lady entirely on his say so anyway. And that does that does remind one of the uh, uh, the architect, the professional person who in a certain class of thriller can wander around ordering around the working class police. Yes. Julie Christie is very posh as always. And I, I, I think there is that where that goes nowhere, particularly, I cannot think of, of any other. And there is of course the, 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 very British upper class thing of sending your your child away to a boarding school before things get emotionally difficult. Yeah, yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're definitely upper class. I, I feel like this movie is overall sort of strangely lacking any people of a lower class, and that like uh, as they're saying, the streets of Venice are remarkably empty and safe at night, uh, other than you know this, <laughs> this murder. You say <laughs> yeah, other other than. This one red-coated murderer running around, but there's there's nobody sleeping on the streets. There's nobody, you know, homeless at all. There's nobody trying to, you know, a- ask for money or attempt to rob anybody, even though they're running around in the you know pitch black in the middle of the night in the the streets of this city. Which my my understanding of Venice, even currently, is that that would not be a safe thing to do. No. No, I mean, it may have been different in 19... I don't think it was that different in 1973 or whatever. This is also a cultural thing because we have the the British versus the Italians, but a lot of the Italians on screen, with the exception of the priests, are people who are running the, the hotel or running the shop or, you know, and then there's the police officers. And a lot of them are just kind of like, we got to deal with this guy, right? So I think that there is some something to be said about kind of being about class and sort of class clashing and not because there's so many, um, I should say, because there are so many uh, scenes where it's just Italian and people speaking in Italian to each other, you know, while it is not subtitled for English audiences, at least in where I found it. It is definitely, it has something there for Italian audiences, especially those who would relate to these characters that are trying to like dance around this nutty English guy and his weird needs asking for a flight and then being like, oh, my wife was here. (laughs) And concierge being like, 
we did this thing just a minute ago where I had to call the airplane and find like the last seat on this chartered plane. Yeah. And now Remember you're like here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that was like this morning. And now you're coming back like what? And you're thinking that your your room is still here. Like the Italian version must play really differently. Yeah. The yeah. Wes Anderson film. <laughs> the Italian version is just like various locals dealing with this. Annoy with like annoying tourists who claim to be psychic and don't understand what closed means. That I mean, that might have something to do with the title. I don't know. Like, don't look now, but he's back and he's looking for his wife. <laughs> so I guess that leads us to our, our sort of final question: Would you guys recommend this? Do you think this is something people should check out? Definitely. Yeah. Enormous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My only hesitation is that the only place to find it streaming right now is. Pluto TV, which is not the I was able to uh, rent it on Amazon. Yeah, I rented yeah. it on Amazon. Well, yeah. the only place it's streaming for free is uh, Pluto TV, which is not not the greatest service. It does have subtitles. You know, it, 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 there are some some places which have less than that, but it is it is available there for free right now and uh, decent quality. Other than having commercials in the middle of a movie, which is terrible. I don't know how I dealt with that. Like a hard stand against it. I don't know how we did that for years. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, which leads us, I guess, to uh, recommendations. Does anyone have anything they want to recommend today? Yes. I would say if you want another movie with that has both Donald Sutherland and Venice, check out the 2003 remake of The Italian Job. I can't say what else it has in common other than Donald Sutherland and Venice, but it does have both of those things. True. Yeah, yeah, that's that's undeniable. Not inaccurate. I can't say I don't think they share any themes, but uh or or any quality. No, no. <laughs> uh, probably watch a better heist movie. I will say, you really have to watch despite the name, you really have to sit down and watch you don't look now. You can basically watch the Italian job while doing dishes or yeah. or you know laundry or whatever you want you'll 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 get them just you don't you don't need to look now at the italian job yeah uh emily did you italian have anything job. you wanted to recommend well i mentioned hereditary it would be a, a good compare contrast just in terms of like and also seeing you know if you watch this movie so many other movies and especially horror movies that have been influenced by this movie there's another movie that has been on my mind between this and Black Christmas is this movie called Season of the Witch by George Romero. And it's a very interesting kind of weird portrait of femininity and, and class and coping, which is, you know, less to do with, with loss um, in the same way that this film is about loss, but more about a different kind of just coping with sexism and age. And that's an, it's a really interesting one. And I think if you're going to be, if you're going to watch it with something, it would be these three movies because of how we have this really interesting, unusual depictions in terms of like kind of tropes that we're familiar with. So yeah, Season of the Witch by George Romero. Also very cool, weird editing in that one. And, you know, and if you want to watch more non-Euclidean lovemaking and spooky shit happening in italy the third season of hannibal is all that that's all it is i i i would mention for more nicholas rogue uh walkabout and for 
a, a with on the same vibe. Um, how much is true? How much is objective reality? Picnic, picnic at hanging rock. Um, another seventies movie about whether or not something or something supernatural is going on here, and that's also a very strong sense of place. Yeah, as as you said, don't look now influences ton of things afterwards we're now onto sort of the fourth or fifth generation of influence and it, mm-hmm. it's become so much part of horror filmmaking and actual just filmmaking again absolutely yeah i think it's interesting because i i feel like this is this could easily be interpreted as what we now think of as like prestige horror right? highbrow horror when it's you know years before any anybody thought to call it anything like that i will say on the um on the Donald Sutherland front, as well as, you know, the paranoid thriller front, I do really like the uh, 70s remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 78 oh, yeah. version. Yeah, I yeah. personally, like, I know it gets ranked under it, but I think it's better than the original. The original is fantastic, but, like, it doesn't make any sense, especially the ending of it doesn't make any sense. It just sort of, like, they, they're just sort of like, all right, and this is this is going to end. It's. It doesn't it doesn't stick to its own sci-fi rules that it sets for itself, where I think, you know, this one does. And of course, anything that's got the trio of Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy in it is like, how could you oh, pass yeah. it up? And then, of course, yeah. you know, Art Hindle, who we just talked about. Being oh, Black twitchy, Christmas do you want room. a movie to be? I mean, that's maximum twitchy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm surprised <laughs> they ever get out of a room with the three of them you know, around and just sit around and, and talk and go in circles the whole time. I also did want to recommend, I've been doing a bunch of horror movie watching for October, and uh, I finally got around to watching Werewolves Within, which is really Ooh, I fun. To, I still need to watch that. It's really fun. Uh, you know, Sam Richardson is is as much of a lead as that movie has. He's a lot of fun. Anybody who's, who's seen, you know, Detroiters or any number of the other things he's done is, you know, he's he's a delight. But uh, I feel like the real like star of that is Milena Vontraub, who like, uh, sorry, Vaintraub, who was supposed to be Squirrel Girl in uh, the Marvel version of, you know, the, the new warriors that they were going to do and, and would have been great for that because she is delightful in this film. She is really enjoyable and fun to watch and I think brings a, a real sense of place to those sort of like small town that it's set in because there's a lot of other characters that could very easily be just like, you know, they're bit hillbilly characters, but, you know, she plays the the male woman who is sort of the much of a second lead or love interest as the story has. And she's she's really great throughout. So definitely a movie worth checking out. It also is a nice, quick horror film. Watched a couple that are much too long recently. Yeah, um, I, I appreciate a horror movie that knows when to get in and when to get out. Also Harvey Guillen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Guillermo himself of, of what we do in the shadows doing, doing the most with his part in that movie, the absolute most. Well, that, uh, that wraps us up there. Paul, uh, would you like to tell people where they can find you online and find out more about what you're working on right now? Well, paulcornell.com and I've got a link tree there. I'm on Insta. I'm on blue sky. I'm on LinkedIn and that's it. Yep. And I am of course the co-host. If you like horror podcasts, of Hammer House of Podcast, where myself and Lisbeth Miles are watching all of the Hammer movies in order. 
and we've got six left of the classic run. Which and uh, thank and thanks to Eddie Izzard, we've now got, got to ext- extend our run by one um, one movie um, because his Jekyll is out next week. Ooh, amazing! And it's, it's a Hammer movie. Hell yeah! That sounds great. Um, I, I, I Hammer Studios are, lit- are literally back, and they have made a new movie. So that's their fourth incarnation. Amazing! Awesome. Can back as many times. Can, can never keep hammered down. Soldiers. Yep. <laughs> All right. They they are a literal horror creature at this point. <laughs> they cannot die. They keep coming back. All right. And uh, Ben, did you want to let people know uh, where they can find you online? Yes, make sure to check me out at BenConComics.com. Find me on all the social medias, BenConComics. And definitely check out L. Campbell Wins Their Weekend. My pro's debut is out in stores now. And make sure to check out uh, Captain Laserhawk on Netflix and then pick up the uh, Manga Italian from Tokyo pop out this winter. Nice. And uh, Emily, what about yourself? Megamoth. Dot net. It's my little link tree there. We have Mega Moth on Blue Sky and Mega underscore Moth on Instagram, Mega Moth on Patreon. Check it out. I I have a $1 tier on Patreon. Yep. Fantastic. And uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 on my website at jeremywhitley.com, which I just finished fixing up. So it actually looks like a real website again. And you can find me at uh, it's Jeremy Whitley, both on Tumblr and Blue Sky. As for if you're listening to this in November, you are literally days away from the release of the second School for Extraterrestrial Girls book from myself and Jamie Noguchi. If you're listening to this after it comes out, then it's already out. So go get it. It's out there. For the podcast, you can find us on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at Prague Horror Pod where we would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, rate and review this wherever you're listening to it. You give us five stars. It helps us find more people, which helps us continue doing this this podcast, which really just benefits you in the long run. So there's no reason not to do it. Thanks again so much to Paul for joining us. This was, this was great. You so Thank much. you for bringing this to us. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Paul. Awesome. And thank so. you for, for bringing this movie Yes. Um, it has been on my list, and I'm so happy to, to be able to talk about it, too. That is one of my favorite parts so about this much. podcast is yeah. just getting to see all these movies that I probably never would have otherwise gotten to see. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I, I remember distinctly asking Paul if he wanted to do this, and he was like, I don't really watch that many horror movies. And me being like, what about weird British 70s horror movies? And he's like, yeah, there you go. I like horror with all the horror drained out largely. That's why I do a Hammer podcast. Good call. Yeah, I feel like I think uh, the only Hammer Lee. movie we've talked about on this so far is uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula. So yeah, Ooh, one of these days we're films. gonna have to get back around all those. Quite a good cut, but yeah. one of the first ones, Curse of Frankenstein. We'll have to get around to that Check one. That one out. We get more more Hammer on here. We don't want to compete directly with you, but you know, we'll throw yes. in some here and there. <laughs> Maybe in a year or so we'll do <laughs> our yeah. Hammer. Well, you guys could we could do like a team up. Oh, yes. Bring yeah. his miles on here. That would be cool. That'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks again to all of you for joining us. And until next time, stay horrified.